Will you turn with me, please, to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel? The 14th chapter of John's Gospel. And verses 15 to 18. The 14th chapter of John's Gospel is the first chapter of three chapters which, uh, which, are, um, which, which comprise the final discourse of the Lord before the events of the, the trials and cross following. And so this is the beginning of his teaching, the last teaching, the last sermon in some ways to the, to the, to, to the disciples, to the apostles. Verse 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord himself bless it in our meditation upon it tonight. As we pointed out this morning, it has pleased the Lord that we should live through difficult days. There's no hiding it. We are living through difficult days. Decadence stalks the land in these days. In the last 55 years, there have been 9 million abortions in this land. Think of it. For the first time in history, more children are born out of wedlock than in wedlock. These are chilling thoughts, aren't they? Chilling thoughts. We could go on. Some of the features of our moral decline and decadence have been mentioned already this morning, so I would dwell on them. And then there's this other thing. The feeling that we have of the steep decline of the church and attendances upon public worship. And therefore, along with that, despising of the Lord's Day and the sanctity of the Lord's Day. It's quite chilling, isn't it? Now, various reasons for this moral and spiritual decay could be offered. The question for us is, how can we envisage any change to this scenario? The church seems to be dying, seems to be dying, what hope is there for a recovery? On what will it depend? We might say this. From where will our help come? And this is the relevance of what we have here in John 14. Particularly in these verses we read. We turn to John 14. This is part of Jesus' final discourse as we mentioned. And this passage encourages us in our present plight. Here is Jesus on the eve of his departure, that is to say, his departure via the cross. He faces the cross. He faces the cross. He faces the death on the cross. But of course, he also, there is also anticipation, as he, has taught, as he taught in many parts of, the, of his teaching through the New Testament. He also anticipated the resurrection and there is the ascension to come. This is something the disciples couldn't quite follow. 
But this was a, a very vital aspect of the accomplishment of his redemption for sinners. That he rose from the dead and is alive. So his departure via the cross is pending. And then his resurrection, his ascension, of which we read in Acts chapter 1. The question for them was, what's going to happen to us? Is this the end of all things? If he goes to the cross, what's going to happen? How will we cope without him? What optimism can we have about the future of the church? What is the source of its life and power? Is this just a matter of having a church to attend? Well, surely not. Or is it just having a faithful ministry? Well, surely not. These are very important. The truth, however, is that the church depends on more. We must always remember what we might call the Sardis Syndrome. Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis at the beginning of Revelation chapter 3. And it's searching. That church seemed to have everything. There was a church planted by the apostles. Plenty of people and ordinances. A notice board, we might say, metaphorically speaking, which had things listed on it. Plenty of activity in this church in Sardis. Did a name that it was alive, Jesus says. But you are dead. I think that's perhaps the most chilling statement in the New Testament. A name to be alive, but are dead. Here's a thought. If you were living in 1842, picture it, under the ministry of Robert Murray McChain, would you expect to hear this with reference to the church in Sardis, 1842, the eve of the disruption? Of all the churches, I think this best applies to us, he says. He's a bold man, bold preacher. You never know, he might be cancelled for saying a thing like that in congregations. He even said that we have a name to live and are dead. There's a searching thought. We have a name to live but are dead. You'd be hearing this in 1842 or thereabouts in my change service. All I can say is when we search our hearts, and I search my heart first here, what would we say of the churches in Scotland today? We look back at those days as palmy days of great gospel power. These days seem to have gone. What would he say if he was with us today? The uncomfortable truth is that a church is as alive spiritually as those who comprise it. That is also true of the Free Church of Scotland continuing, as well as other denominations as well. It's not the possession of buildings that makes a church. 
or the access to sound ministry that constitutes life in a church, important as these things are as appointed means. It is such as you and me having real spiritual life that is spoken of in these verses. Now there are several important things here indicating true spiritual life in Christ. I'd like to bring out a few things tonight. Three things. Here's the first searching proposition. Searching proposition. It's the beginning of verse 15. These words, If ye love me. If ye love me. Here's the fundamental truth. You are to love the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls on sinners to repent, to believe, to love him. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the greatest gift. Paul doesn't mean there merely human brotherly love, what we might call the Philadelphia love. We all have such love in, our, in a measure, hopefully, for our spouses, for our children, for our siblings, our families. And whether they are wayward or not, we will have a love for them. Our friends and neighbours as well, perhaps slightly less than our immediate family. The standard for love Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13, however, and Jesus speaks of here, is different, it is higher, it is divine, it is measured by the love of God, the love he has for this world, the love that sent his Son into the world, that brought the Lord Jesus Christ, the love that brought the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Think of the love of Christ coming voluntarily into this world. What for? For the salvation of sinners. Dead in trespasses and sins and lost apart from the intervention of God in love in this world. In sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To die for the sins of his people. In order that they might have the right basis for acceptance with God. <coughs> we are to reflect that sort of love. It will be wholehearted, it will be selfless, it will be felt, it will be a love driven by loyalty. Driven by loyalty. And we are exhorted to exercise this love towards the Lord and others. It shows who is of the highest value to us in the world. What or who is of the highest value to you and me in this world? If it, is, if it is not the Lord Jesus Christ, it is wanting. And it's a mark of being touched by Christ's grace and power. The obligations and privileges of love to the Lord are rooted in the law. This may come as a surprise to people. But you turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is the standard of it. And it shall be that if you earnestly 
obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out those nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. This is notably emphasized by Jesus when he was speaking to a lawyer or scribe who asked him which was the greatest commandment, which was the great commandment of the law. Do you remember? This is in Matthew 22. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is very searching. It can trip off our tongues. But is there real love and passion there in our hearts for men and women, but above all, for the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Now, it's obvious that there are blessings attaching to love for Christ. But there is a negative side to this, a challenging side, a gospel side, if you will. And that is found in what Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, he says, If any man, if anyone, love not the Lord Jesus Christ, if anyone love not the Lord Jesus Christ, well, what is the significance of that? What is the consequence of that? A soul who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the consequence? Let him be well, in our old translation, it is anathema maranatha. That doesn't mean much to us, but anathema is cursed, accursed, and maranatha is, O Lord, come. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, O Lord, come. That is the meaning of that verse in 1 Corinthians 16.22 So here's the first proposition then that we have here in these verses. In verse 15 you are to love the Lord. There's no being a Christian and being right with God without this. Whoever does not love the Lord Jesus Christ is as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 16.22 accursed. Whoever in other words is not actively and lovingly and devoutly and, and, and uh, perseveringly and carefully trusting him from the heart is still unsaved outside the kingdom and in danger of being lost forever. Touchstone is what love is there in our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour and as Lord. However, there's a second searching proposition also in verse 15 and it's the second part of the verse if ye love me and this is a, an exhortation keep my commandments we might describe this second point as um, there will be proof of love for the Lord those who love the Lord Jesus Christ will keep his commandments. 
Now, let it be said clearly that we don't earn salvation by works, by law-keeping. There is no acceptance that way. We rejoice in the reality and necessity of God's sovereign grace. We rely wholly upon the work of Christ which avails for sinners. That work would principally be accomplished upon the cross, something that, as we've mentioned, is very near at this point of the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we may see, say that we love someone. Supposing we say that we love someone. Our words can be cheap. Love is to be demonstrated. How is it demonstrated? Well, by faithfulness, steadfastness, care, consideration for the one that we say we love. What about love to Christ? How will it show? How will your love to Christ show? Now, Christ knew that his followers faced a crisis because he was going to leave them. He knew that they faced a crisis. He was going to be taken away from them. How would they react? Well, no doubt they would weep and lament. But he doesn't want them just to weep and lament. When we think of the prevailing spiritual darkness of our day, we might be inclined to do so as well, and that would be a good thing, to weep and lament. At how bad things are. But proof of loving the Lord Jesus Christ will not lie in the degree that we bemoan our bad situation, but this, that we keep his commandments. It will lie in doing his will. It would lie in going about life according to his teaching. It will lie in dying to sin. And sin is exposed by keeping the commandments, of course. And once our sin is exposed to us, then we go with repentance to God. As long as there is sin in the world, there will be the necessity for repentance in the world. Not just for a soul that, that is dead in trespasses and sins needs to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. They will repent of their sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as long as there is sin in the world, there is necessity of repentance. And that applies to believers as well. That applies to believers as they go through this life and they struggle with with the world and the flesh and the devil, and the sins of the flesh. Now, Christ is no doubt here referring to the Ten Commandments, a summary of the moral law, but also his teaching. For example, the Sermon on the Mount, verses five, chapter 5 to 7 in, in, in Matthew's Gospel. Or indeed, <coughs> these chapters here, where he gives his, what is called often his final discourse in chapters 14 uh, through to 16, the end of 16. The parables and other passages of his teaching. This challenges those who say that they have a love for him. It challenges them in this way. We are to be diligent students of his teaching. Indeed, the teaching of the entire scripture. We are to be men and women and children of prayer seeking the enlightening of our minds and hearts in the knowledge of the word. We are to be diligent upon the hearing of the word of God that we might pr pray the Lord that it would take a lodgment in our hearts and produce fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. 
We're to be diligent in these things. Why? So that we might do his will and prove that we love him. That does not mean, for example, that everyone who observes a very quiet Sabbath and who succeeds in avoiding gross sin proves their love for the Lord. However, those who do profess love for the Lord will show it by their words and by their deeds, by their actions. They will be Christ-like. They will act as Christ acted. They will love like Christ. They will walk like Christ. They will walk with Christ. He said, keep my commandments. Set your heart. Set your heart, dear friend. Is that true of me? Am I demonstrating love to Christ by keeping his word, by being diligent about it and acting upon it? But notice the third proposition here. Because you might ask, you might ask the question, who is sufficient for these things? How can, I do, how can I do this? I'm only a poor, sinful, wayfaring man. How can I do, how can I do this? Well, here's the third point I would suggest from this, these verses, and that is what we find in verses 16 to 18. There will be power provided by the Lord. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth in you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. But the Comforter, verse 26, which, the, which is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. And so on. There is not only exhortation of what the Lord expects his followers, of his followers as they live in this world, as they live in this world without his physical presence, but there is also the promise promise here why should there be pessimism amongst those who love the Lord Jesus Christ why should there be pessimism the people of God and it would be something wrong if they didn't feel the, the, the prevailing darkness yet the church of the Lord Jesus Christ need never feel pessimistic need never feel the pessimistic pessimistic how not because of what we're taught here in verses 16 to 18 how lovely these words are let them weigh in your mind and heart i will pray the father i will pray the father we have a as john says in his first letter chapter 2 and verse 1 we have an advocate with the father so whatever whatever you feel overcome by pessimism or, or, or see no way out, no, no way but, but, but decline and, and, and de desperation. Remember this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have one who intercedes at the right hand of the Father. The one who is building his church, infallibly building his church. And this was fulfilled after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Another comforter. Who is this? Another comforter. I will give you, that he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Who is this other comforter, this helper? Who is this? The spirit of truth, the same spirit Jesus spoke of, for example, in John 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth. 
the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Here is a source of encouragement and power. Here is a source of assurance for the faithful church that all is not lost and that the success of the gospel will ultimately be assured. Notice what Jesus says here about the Holy Spirit. First of all, he is a person. This might seem commonplace to you. He is a person. Jesus says he would abide with his disciples forever. They know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In other words, this spirit is not a mere force or power. It isn't merely the, the force of God, but a person, a divine person, indeed, the third person of the glorious Trinity. So when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of one who is a divine person. And we recognize that Father loves his people. The Son loves his people. The Holy Spirit loves his people. And he is called here also the Spirit of Truth. That is to say, he is concerned with truth and the, and the communication of truth and the application of truth to people's lives. Listen to what Jesus teaches a few a a few, a, a few, um, a few, a couple of chapters further on in, in chapter 16. He says this, Howbeit when, the Spirit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, what will he do? He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of me of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. And in chapter 16 he deals with the work of the Spirit, convincing the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Not only, though, is he expressed here, is he <clears throat> revealed here, of Spirit as a person, divine person, but, and, and also a Spirit of truth, but his work, Jesus, is a mystery to the world, even the Spirit whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. This is a mystery to the world. This was a mystery to Nicodemus when Jesus spoke about the new birth by the Holy Spirit from above. And this is the meaning of the second part of verse 2. What he produces, the world cannot understand. Spiritual life, repentance, faith, hope, the fear of God, love for Christ. The Spirit produces these. This is a mystery to people. Because the unbelieving world hasn't yet bowed the knee to Christ, doesn't understand yet what it is to have repentance to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. But, but notice this, at the end of verse 17, But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. This is of enormous comfort and encouragement just in such days that we live through. And is there any generation better than another in that respect? Because we are in a fallen world. A fallen world in which we struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil, whether it is in what we might think is a better gener generation 
in which there are periods of revival, of what we call revival, than in those times of darkness such as those we live through nowadays. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. How do you know? How do you know? Well, has your life been turned around? Have you come to trust in him? Is it a concern on your part to keep his commandments? To pray? Do you have that concern? To read his word and to assimilate it, to take it into your life and heart? And then there is grief as well. Is there grief in your life? Grief over sin in yourself and in the church and in the world? Where do such desires come from? Search your hearts, especially in relation to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 to 26. How do you know that the Spirit is dwelling with you and in you when these things are true in your life? <coughs> when your focus is upon the things of God, the things of the Spirit. But then there's another thing, a fifth thing, that is mentioned here in relation to the Spirit, and that is he represents Christ in his absence. This was tremendously important for the disciples. What are we going to do without Christ when he leaves us? What do you mean leaving us? How, how, how will we get on then? How will we be sustained in this faith? This is what is meant in the context when Christ says, I will come to you, verse 18. The true Christ was temporarily present with them after his resurrection, before the ascension of these 40 days. But in this gospel age, he is represented by the Spirit in building his church. He directs the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in building his church. And in this lies the vital importance and centrality of the work of the Holy Spirit for us. Today, just as much as in those days in which his death upon the cross and his departure via the ascension were very soon to be witnessed. So what are we going to say in conclusion? I say this, praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. For the coming of the Holy Spirit, which, he, which came, where the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, in fulfillment of this promise of John 14 through 16. <clears throat> Plead with the Lord further for a greater measure of the Holy Spirit in your life. in convincing you and convicting you and strengthening you in faith and love and holiness and plead for a greater measure of his work in the church as well that the churches would come alive to the things of the Holy Spirit of God that there would be a reality in it and a power in it Reality and true Christian faith arises from what the Spirit does in people's hearts and lives. That is the truth of the matter. Christian religion is not just a mental thing, not just an outward persuasion. 
It's an inward change wrought by the Spirit of truth sent by Christ to bring his people real faith and hope and love. And particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a spiritual religion. It isn't a dead faith. It's a spiritual religion. We need the Spirit's work for there to be a real walk of faith. So, we have the Comforter, the Helper, Helper for the Church in every age. Bishop Ryle said in one place, Any doctrine about the Church, the ministry and the sacraments which obscures the Spirit's inward work or turns it into a mere form is to be avoided as deadly error. Let us never rest till we feel and know that he dwells in us. Here is a searching truth. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8 and 9. His work must be sought, prayed for, played for, but he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. I will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, he says. Luke eleven, thirteen. Therefore, ask. Therefore, plead with him. Plead how? Come, Holy Spirit. Come amongst us in power. Come for our quickening. Come for our blessing. Come for our holy living. Come in your reviving and transforming power. So let us go to it and pray for the Comforter, the Helper, that he may come with us and dwell within us, that we may be mightily encouraged in these days. We are not alone. We have Christ with us, walking among the lampstands by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he sent and whom he directs. And may he bless these thoughts upon his word and his word to our hearts. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, Father in heaven, we thank thee for the Holy Spirit who was sent proceeding from the Father and the Son and we pray for much of the Spirit's work, for a greater measure of the Spirit's work in our lives and in our hearts that we be people of holiness, of piety, of likeness to Jesus, of love to Jesus of repentance and faith, and of faith and hope and love. Look upon us in mercy, Lord. Forgive us our sin. Grant, Lord, that we may be much on our knees, that thou would send and breathe upon us by thy Spirit, breathe life upon us and within us. Hear us then, Lord, we pray, and teach us, cleansing us from all sin and receiving us graciously. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us sing in conclusion in Psalm 143. Psalm 143 and verses 7 to 12, the second version of Psalm 143. <coughs> the second version of Psalm 143 and from verse 7 to the end of the psalm. Lord, let my prayer prevail, to answer it make speed. 
For lo, my spirit doth fail, hide not thy face in need. Lest I be like to those that do in darkness sit, or him that downward goes into the dreadful pit. Because I trust in thee, O Lord, cause me to hear thy loving kindness free when morning doth appear. Cause me to know the way wherein my path shall be, should be. For why my soul on high I do lift up to thee. And so on to the end of the, to the, end of the psalm. From Psalm 143, the second version, verse 7. Lord, let my prayer prevail. Lord, let my prayer be
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.